Okay, one of my uh, one of my favorite songs that I go back to a lot and listen to a lot is by David Crowder. Do you guys listen to David Crowder? I don't know if that's just a millennial thing. I think it is just a millennial thing, but uh, in 2007, he was huge, okay? So uh, his concerts are great. Honestly, I think he's like one of the best like concert performers I've ever experienced. I actually didn't really even like his albums that much until I went to some of his concerts. But anyways, David Crowder, uh, one of my favorite songs that he uh, has done is called Let Me Feel You Shine. And he opens the song up with this kind of haunting line that just sticks with me. And the line is this, this place is trying to break my belief. He opens up the song saying, this place, the world, is trying to break my belief. Do you guys ever feel like that? Do you guys ever feel like the world is trying to break your belief? I've grown up in the church. I've been a Christian for a long time. And sometimes... Some days, some months, some years, I feel like this place is trying to break my belief. I feel like temptation and sadness and hopelessness is around every corner that I go through. And sometimes it even feels like the the world itself is conspiring in a way to break my belief. Like the world is conspiring to break my belief in Jesus, to break my belief in God. Now, I list, listen, I know some of you don't want to hear this stuff from your pastor, okay? And so there's lots of churches in town. But uh, I know what we usually want is some motivation, some encouragement. I want to do that for you guys plenty of times. And, and also to be clear, I'm doing great. I'm okay. <laughs> like, I'm okay. I've had a lot of great repair and healing over the last year in particular. But that being said... We need to have a faith that can accept that there are seasons like this in our lives at times as Christians. Our faith, even though we get the resurrection in the end, our faith doesn't always feel like it's up and to the right. Our faith doesn't always feel like it's making profits and strides. Often our faith feels like we're walking through the shadow of the valley of death. And so sometimes when those seasons are happening in my life, I kind of go, I feel like this place is trying to break my belief. That the line in that song at times just makes so much sense to me. When I watch my friends hurting, or I see pain and suffering in the world, or even experience deep doubts myself, that line makes a lot of sense to me. And going through this Servant King series that we've been in, I've realized I'm not that different than the Israelites that, who are living in exile that we've been learning about in this series. These Israelites, they're living in exile, which means they're, express, they're, they're experiencing oppression from another nation, and actually a few nations in a row, where that nation rules them and controls them and displaces them, and they are not their own sovereign nation anymore. And as this is going on in their lives, as they are the people of God, as they are God's chosen people, and then these nations come in with different gods and begin to rule them, I'm sure that they were saying to themselves, this place is trying to break my belief. They probably were even going further. They were probably saying, this place is breaking my belief. And in these poems that we've been looking at, in Isaiah 40 through 55, which is really one long poem and a bunch of poems all put together, we're seeing all the ways the exile itself 
has been trying to convince the people of God, the Israelites, to break their belief. We, we, we've seen all these ways that exile is trying to break their belief in God. And what God is doing in these poems is he's trying to speak messages louder than their exile. He's, he's using these poems to speak messages louder than the exile that they are experiencing. And as we study this, something I've really realized is these messages are really relevant for us as well. We too are in exile. Not in the same way as the Israelites were, but until you and I are living on this earth and this earth is restored and God is, his presence is here and he's living with us himself in the restored creation, until that happens, in one sense, we are far away from where we were made to be, and we are in one sense in exile. And experiencing similar things to what the Israelites experienced. Because here, here's the deal. You and I, we were made for the Garden of Eden. We were made for the Garden of Eden. If you don't know the Bible very well, just open up the Bible. First book in the Bible is this book called Genesis, and it Genesis 1 and 2 tells this story of God creating everything. And he creates humanity. And he places them in this place called the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is, is a picture for us. And it's a real place. A picture for us of, of what living in the presence of God is like. That's what humanity was created for. The Garden of Eden is this picture of this place where goodness abounds. That's what we were created for. Living in the presence of God where goodness abounds here on earth. But then Adam and Eve, they chose sin and they were exiled out of the garden. They were sent out of the garden. And unfortunately, all of humanity was exiled with them. So whether we like it or not, you and I, we are in exile because we are not where we are supposed to be. We are not even where God would want us to be. He wants us in his presence in a creation where goodness abounds. And so now, you and I, even though we're not in the same sort of exile that the Israelites were in when Isaiah was being written and read, we, we are in a sort of exile because we're in God's creation without his presence as mightily as he created it to be in. And so in exile, as we continue to live in exile, a similar exile, I think, or spiritual exile, like the Israelites were, you and I live around pain and suffering and sin, and that, all of that is often trying to break our belief. It's trying to break our belief and convince us of, th convince us of things that aren't true. Often the exile of this world is trying to convince us of things that aren't true. And until we experience that presence of God in his restored creation, we are going to continue to experience those things. And exile itself is going to continue to try to convince us of things. Exile itself has a way of distorting 
what's true about God, what's true about what he's doing in history. So here's what we're going to do today as we're in chapters 50 and 51 of Isaiah. We're going to see that the exile itself and all that comes with exile tries to convince the people of God of of all sorts of things. But in particular, we're going to look at three things that exile tries to convince us of. And then as we look at each of those things, we will see how God responds to those things and gives hope to each of those painful areas where the exile is convincing us otherwise. We'll see how God speaks to a people in exile who are being convinced of all sorts of things by the exile. God will step in and speak what is true and good and full of hope to us. So that's what we're going to do. Three things exile tries to speak to us, but also accompanying those, we'll see how God responds to those things that exile tries to speak to us, okay? So let's just hop into it. The first thing that exile tries to convince us of, the first thing is this. Exile tries to convince you that God has left you to your sin. Exile tries to convince you that God has left you alone to your sin. This is, I'm, I'm going to speak to a common experience. It's common for Christians to commit something they know is a sin, to do a sin. Is that how you say it? <laughs> commit a sin. And then be racked with guilt. And then you kind of get this thought in your head, well, okay, maybe I'm not, a, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe, not, maybe I'm not a Christian anymore because I committed this sin. Maybe that, like, that's God's, like the straw that broke God's back. Now, and I want to be clear. There is room in our faith for healthy self-reflection and even ownership and conviction of the wrong that we've done. But what I often see is Christians commit a sin. Often it's a sin that's a pattern in our life or one we've done before. And then we're so racked with guilt that we think to ourselves, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I'm not really one of God's people. Maybe I'm not really part of God's family. Maybe I'm one of those, like, I never knew you people. If you know, there's this, like, parable, this story that Jesus tells. He says, at the end of time, there's going to be a whole bunch of you that come to me that looked very religious. And I'm going to say, I never knew you. Those of us that get racked with guilt, we go, maybe I'm one of those I never knew you ones. Again, I don't, I don't want to take away from healthy and good conviction. Some of you need to sit in that for a little while. But something that so often happens to us as we live in an exile, as we live in a time and a place where God is not as easily as accessible as he was in the Garden of Eden, exile convinces you God's left you alone to your sin. You're alone. He's left you to your sin. And I know that the people of Israel, they probably thought the same thing. The people of Israel probably thought the same thing because this is what the worldview was back then. The worldview back then was if your nation could win all the battles, your God was most powerful. And so nations thought their gods were powerful when they won battles. And so the nations that won the most battles had the most powerful gods. And so here is Israel and Isaiah sitting there, ruled by another nation. I'm sure they thought to themselves, God's left us alone to our sin. 
Those gods are more powerful. God's abandoned us. We've been left alone to our sin. And so what does God say to that group of people that are convinced that God has left them alone to their sin? Let's look at Isaiah 50, verses 1 and 2. This is what God says to that people. He says, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. Okay, hold on to those poetic lines, and I'll explain what they mean in a minute. But let's go back to Isaiah 49. Rand read this last week, and he did an amazing job unpacking this. But verses 14 through 16 echo, I think, what the beginning of 50 say too. And they're just such beautiful words of God that it's worth reading again. But Zion said, so Israel said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And then God responds, verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. So, when the Israelites were saying, has God forgotten us? Has he left us alone to our sin? He says, no way. I'm like a mom that can't forget her kids. Even though some moms can forget, I cannot forget you guys. When Israel is saying, well, maybe God divorced us. Maybe God divorced us. Maybe that's what just happened. He he divorced us because of our sin. We deserved it. He divorced us. God says at the beginning of chapter 50, he says, I didn't divorce you. Where's the divorce certificate? Where's the divorce papers? I didn't sign them. Show me signed divorce papers, then I'll believe you. But they don't exist. Because I didn't sign any divorce papers, says the Lord. When Israel is saying, God just sold us to the evil rulers of the world because he gets something out of it. I don't know, he just sold us to them. God says, I don't need their money. I have all the wealth and power and strength in the universe. Church, when exile is trying to convince you that God has left you alone to your sin, read this message and these verses in Isaiah once again and see that even in your darkest moments, this is one of the darkest moments of Israel's history, their sin had some real consequences that they had to deal with. And yet, what God says to them in the midst of the consequences is, show me the divorce papers. I haven't left I haven't not going to. God does not leave his people alone to their sin. That's what he wants to say in Isaiah. To his people in potentially their darkest time in history. He hasn't left. He didn't sign any divorce papers. They don't exist. 
Some of you really need to hear this. Some of you really need to listen to this. It's amazing to me. We, we have this picture of God. He's just like brutal and judging, right? Again, I don't want to take away from God's justice, which is real. But our picture of God often is as this brutal, judging God. And what's amazing to me is we've done two long Old Testament series over this last year. This series and uh, We Want a King series. And time and time again, what we've seen in both these series is as the people of God sin, as the people of God turn away from God, God is right there saying, I love you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm here no matter what. I'm more powerful than all of your sin. I've got to take care of this. Constantly through the Old Testament, we hear this message. A lot of times the Old Testament gets a bad rap. God's not like that. Well, if you read it closely, he's constantly saying things like he says right here in Isaiah. I didn't sign his divorce certificate. I'm like a mom that can't forget her kids. I'm not leaving you. Church, hear those words and be comforted by them. Some of you really need to hear that. God does not leave you alone to your sin. Okay, I, I can already hear. I can hear the guilt dwellers in the room saying different things. I can hear them because one's in my head. Because it's me. I can hear the guilt dwellers in the room. You're going, well... What about God's judgment and his justice and his wrath and sin's consequences and this and, and that? Listen to me. Th those might all be good points. And we will talk about all of those things in the text as they bring those things about God up. But right now, in this passage, in this text, God wants to comfort his people by saying, I could never forget you. I could never leave you. You are my child. But, but, no, he's better than any mom ever. But, but what about, no, he doesn't get anything out of abandoning us, so he won't. Church, don't let exile convince you that God has left you alone to your sin. He hasn't. And the overwhelming message here is, don't believe that lie. And he uses beautiful poetic metaphors to show that. Okay, next thing. I'm going to take a drink. Next thing, the exile tries to convince us uh, of is this. The exile tries to convince you that you are alone in the wastelands of suffering and brokenness in this world. The exile that we all experience as we don't live in the Garden of Eden like we were created to. It tries to convince us that you're alone in the wastelands now, the wastelands of suffering and pain and brokenness. And, and so as we've talked about this idea that we are all in exile in one sense throughout this series, one thing we have to realize is that along with exile, unfortunately, comes a lot of suffering, there's a lot of suffering we experience as we live in exile. It's clear when you read Genesis 1 and 2, we aren't living there. It's clear we aren't living any day anymore as we experience different sufferings and pain in this world. Often there's so much suffering in our lives that it feels like 
We're just wandering wastelands. Have you ever been through that much suffering where you just feel so numb? Where you just feel like you're in this wasteland with nowhere to go? If you don't relate to that experience, give it time. The world will show you its suffering. And so suffering has this effect on us that we start to believe we're alone in the universe. We, be, we, we begin to believe there's no God, only chaos. We're just out here in the wastelands with no way out of this pain. Or some of us, we get to this hopeless point that maybe we're in the midst of suffering and we know that suffering's going to go away. But we're, we're kind of already before one suffering ends, we go, what's the next batch of suffering I'm about to get? I think this is partly what the Israelites were feeling. They're going, we've been forced away from our land. Those of us that were left in Israel were the poor. And those lands that they were left in are just war-torn wastelands that can't provide for themselves as they once could. The Israelites were going, we are alone in the wastelands of our suffering. What does God say to that group of people that are feeling that way. We can see in Isaiah 51, 1 through 6. This is what he says. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him, and I made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and he will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of sing singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. This people that are feeling like I'm just, we're just alone out here in the wastelands of our suffering, God says to them, remember. Remember how I've worked in history. Remember what I did with your ancestors, Abraham and Sarah. He was just one old guy that couldn't produce life on his own, but I made it so he could produce life. And that life became you. That life became this nation. Remember what I've done in history. I grew you, a nation, from him. I am going to bring comfort, God says to them. I am going to bring compassion and love and joy and care to Israel's ruined cities. I will make the deserts and wastelands of Israel like the Garden of Eden again. That's what God says to the people that feel alone in the wastelands. And then he also says this. He says, not only am I going to do that for you, Israel, I'm actually going to do that for everyone. 
Anytime we see islands in this poem, that's like to the ends of the earth. Those are people that are not the people of Israel. And God says, hey, all of this stuff you're experiencing, they are in one sense experiencing, and I'm going to bring my joy and garden of Eden to all of them. That's what God says to the Israelites when they feel alone in their suffering. So what do we hear God saying to us when we are convinced we are alone in the wastelands of our suffering? Through these words, we can hear God say to us, these wastelands, they're only temporary. God's saying, in fact, look, look to history and see how I've moved throughout history. I'm on the way. I'm bringing justice and hope and righteousness for all. I'm going to make this whole place like the Garden of Eden again. And so now, yes, you exist in some wastelands. But that's not always going to be the case. It makes sense. It makes sense that suffering makes us feel isolated and like something is deeply wrong in the world. Anyone that's experienced suffering, your whole categories for life and worldview go out the window. And that makes sense. You're actually right to question reality because suffering's not supposed to be part of reality. So much so that God makes sure, that God makes sure to tell us throughout the Bible and here in the passage that we're in today to tell us, hey, I'm on the way. Remember how I've been working. Remember how I've been moving. I know things are tough right now, but I'm going to bring joy and happiness and a garden of Eden again. I'm going to do it. Suffering is not supposed to be here, and one day it won't. I I think sometimes I'm a bad pastor. I know I say that facetiously because I think I'm a really great pastor, but um, (laughs) I'm a bad pastor in the sense is there's other pastors that are going to help you like kind of put the keys together for evil and suffering and why it exists and why it's in our life. And and I think you should listen to those pastors and gain a lot of wisdom from those pastors. But I kind of just see all the suffering and I can't really see how it fits in because it doesn't fit in. I can't help but see that suffering is part of this exile we all experience until God returns and makes everything better. And it seems like God himself wants to say that to us in our suffering. Hey, I know I hate this suffering. I don't, I don't like this suffering for you. One day I'm going to wipe it all out. He says other things about suffering too, but this is one of the messages he says. He goes, I know you're in the wastelands right now, but I'm coming. I'm coming to make it all better. I'm going to make this place like the Garden of Eden again. And so sometimes as we sit in the wastelands of our suffering, waiting for God, sometimes all we can do is just trust in him. A lot of our relationship with God is trusting, like the act of trusting. And hope that what he said is true. And remember the times that God has acted in history that we get to see through this book, but also even in our individual lives. There's a lot of us that knows that God's worked in our lives, and it's easy for us to forget that. In times of suffering, it's, it's good to reflect on those things. God is on the way to get rid of suffering, and we are not alone in the wastelands of our suffering. He is here with us, working and moving in history. 
All right. Third thing. Third thing that this exile tries to convince us of is this, that you don't need God. The exile tries to convince you that you don't need God. This place is trying to break your belief. And sometimes it kind of does. Right? God feels distant. Suffering abounds. The, the people of God are acting foolish and crazy sometimes. They're worshiping all kinds of other gods. And then some of us are like, hey, you're worshiping those other gods. They're like, no, I'm not. I almost said more, but I saved it for my therapist. And so sometimes this place just kind of breaks our belief. And all of that working together, it also makes you at times just go, maybe I don't really need God. Maybe I'm my own way out of this exile. Maybe I defeat my bad habits and sin on my own. Maybe I comfort myself because he won't comfort me. It's very easy for me to be convinced I don't need God. It's very easy for me to be sure that I work for all the goodness and comfort I receive, that I earn all the goodness and comfort that I receive and get and experience. But something fundamental for us as the people of God, and this is fundamental for us, if we are going to experience and know the God of the Bible, which, by the way, with or without the Bible, I think he's the God of the universe. If we are going to know and experience that God, the fundamental thing we have to realize is this. We need God. We need him. It's actually a sick irony that the exile that we all experience often warps us into thinking we don't need God. Because the exile should actually point to our immense need of him. In fact, in Israel, there seemed to always be a remnant that whatever suffering they experienced, they kept going, this shows how much we need him. And they would cry out to him all the more. And even in this poem, every time that God points out a problem with Israel, he seems to point to this solution that keeps coming up in the poem. And this solution is this thing called the servant. He keeps talking about this servant who's going to come along and fit and makes things right. And in fact, God would say to Israel in the midst of their pain and suffering and exile, you need this servant. Read with me Isaiah 50, 4 through 9. This part of the poem is like the servant speaking about the work that God has given him. So it's like the servant speaking here. Verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. And moths will eat them up. God says to Israel, to get you out of this mess 
of exile, which was brought about by your sin. I'm sending the servant. And the servant is going to be one that's totally empowered by God. He's going to be this great teacher, he says. A teacher in particular, in particular for those that feel weary. When most humans, this was true in that time and it's true now, when most of us feel weary, we usually look to ourselves or some idol or some good gift in creation to comfort us. But what God is pointing out in this poem is that you are weary because you need him and you need the servant. And you're working so hard to not be weary by worshiping idols or good gifts or yourself that you're actually becoming more weary. That those things that you're doing to not be weary, it's actually really tiring work. And what God says in this poem many times He says, instead of look to those things, look to my servant. His servant can hear from God and let God, let you know what God is saying. His servant can follow God no matter what, something Israel and we fail at. His servant can take the enemy's oppression on himself and withstand it. His servant is fixed on completing the work that the Lord has given him. And no one can accuse the servant of any wrongdoing because the servant is perfect. God in this poem is telling the world and Israel that they need the servant. That he is who can fix everything. So who is this servant? Well, about 700 to 500 years after these poems were written, there was this guy named Yeshua, a Jewish guy that entered the scene. In English, his name would be Joshua, in Greek, Jesus. And when Jesus started doing ministry, when he started like kind of doing this work in the world of ministry, he would go to religious places, temples, and he would open up the scroll to Isaiah, to this section of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55, and he would read it, and then he would say, that's me. He would read it and he would say, that's the work that I do. And so Jesus begins to identify himself with this servant. But not only Jesus, the guys that hung out with Jesus all the time, his disciples, they began in their writings to identify this servant and Isaiah with Jesus. And not just them, even guys that came after, like Paul, the prolific Christian writer, He began to identify this servant that Isaiah talks about with Jesus. So to clue you in, the servant is Jesus. Israel knew that a servant was coming that was going to do all of this amazing work. They just didn't know who it was. We do. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth served the world with the very presence of God. The weary were drawn to him because they couldn't claw their way to comfort and out of exile. But there was something about this Jesus guy that comforted them and made them, that their, made them believe that their exile was soon to be defeated. We, we Christians, we get mocked sometimes for like our answer to everything is like, we need Jesus, right? You need Jesus, right? 
watching reality TV, that guy needs Jesus, right? Like we get mocked for that being the answer to everything. And that's okay, I know, it sounds crazy. We say a man from 2,000 years ago that would be named Josh right now if he was in America, that, that we can't even see anymore is the key to everything. It sounds crazy. But what if he is what you need? What if he is the key to everything? What if he is God in the flesh? What if he is the servant that this ancient poem talks about? What if he is the chosen one? What if he is the one that can save the world? I think exile, or I think Isaiah wants to speak against exile and help us see that we need the servant. And the rest of the Bible helps us to see that that servant is Jesus. Exile tries to convince us otherwise. And so church, as we continue to live in exile, we kind of have this choice every day as believers. Trust the servant or trust these things we're finding in exile to comfort us. As for me, when the exile tries to break my belief or convince me I'm alone in all sorts of ways, or it tries to convince me I can do this on my own, there's just something in me that knows that that's not true. And so I'm going to trust the servant and trust that I need him. But sometimes it's really hard for me to believe all that and trust in the servant and trust in Jesus. Sometimes exile is louder. And so I sing the rest of that song, actually, as a prayer. I sing it as an act of trust when I don't feel like trusting. I sing it as rebellion against the exile. I sing it as a desperate cry for God. And so look at the rest of the lyrics with me. And may this song become a prayer for you. Or may you see how we can approach God when exile is loud. So he starts the song off by saying, this place is trying to break my belief. And then it continues. But my faith is bigger than all I can see. And what I need is redemption. What I need is for you to put me back on my feet. I swear I'm trying to give everything. But I fear I'm falling. Oh, make me believe what I need is resurrection. What I need is for you to put me back on my feet. If I could feel you shine your perpetual light, then maybe I could crawl out of this tonight. If I could feel you shine, let me feel you shine. So beautiful and warm, so beautiful and bright, like your sun coming out of the raining sky. Let me feel you shine. Let me feel you shine. I lift the knife to the thing I love most. Praying you'll come so I can have both. And what I need is you to touch me. And what I need is for you to be the thing that I need. If I could feel you shine your perpetual light, then maybe I could crawl out of this tonight. If I could feel you shine, oh, let me feel you shine. So beautiful and warm, so beautiful and bright, like your sun coming out of the raining sky. Let me feel you shine. Let me feel you shine. Let me feel you shine. God, I need a savior. Oh, come, generous king. Oh, God, I need a savior to come rescue me church. May that be our prayer when exile is loud and painful and isolating. 
And may we hear these powerful words from Isaiah and let those convince us of all that we have in God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we need you. God, thank you for these words in Isaiah. God, thank you for actually upholding these promises in Isaiah some seven to 500 years after they were written. God, we need you. God, sometimes the exile is so loud that all of these things are true. The exile, it feels sometimes like the exile is winning. God, convince us of your victory. Convince us of your everlasting salvation. Convince us of your work. Speak to our hearts. Move in our hearts. Do work in us, God. Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you. God, I'm not all that interested in just doing like a really good religion and following some words in the book. I actually want to encounter you and I want us to encounter you. And you say through your spirit, we can. So I ask God, for those in the room right now where exile is loud, would you quiet the exile? Or would you be at least louder than the exile? God, we we need you. Rescue us. Amen.